was going on here, children? Yeah. Now, who won? Silas did. Yeah, why did he win? Austin was helping him. You didn't see Austin right away, did you? You saw him come in, yeah. You noticed, after a while, you noticed something's going on the other end of this rope. So there's, uh, Titus is a little bigger. He should have won, right? But Silas won. Now, sometimes we're fighting or we're pulling on this, on this rope. We're, we're battling something. Let's say a bad habit or something. And, and we're fighting. We're trying to win and we're losing. But you know what we need to do? We need to have somebody behind us on the rope pulling too. And then we can win. Who, who might that be? God. Yeah. All right, that's all I've got. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> all right. So an important part of believing in God is believing that He's going to win, no matter how big the conflict is. And um, knowing that God is going to win means that you understand prophecy. I don't know how many of you thought I was going to end it that way. But understanding prophecy isn't, doesn't mean you understand all the details of how everything is going to turn out. It means you understand that God is going to win. That's the basic premise that underlies all of the prophets, all of the prophetic writings in the Bible. God is asking you to take the rope and pull. The Holy Spirit lives in people. And so God gives us His power, but we've got to get on the rope. We can't sit back and wait for God to do all the pulling. I'm going to uh, turn to Revelation chapter 19, and that's what I'm taking my message from. I'm going to read the first ten verses. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitutes who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, who fear him small and great. After this, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are they who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, 
you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The title of this message is The Spirit of Prophecy. So here in Revelation, we see a glimpse of the end, the way things are going to turn out. Whatever we think about church, whatever we do, whatever we decide, and some of these other matters, we must understand that there is a glorious end. If we lose sight of that, we'll become discouraged. God at last defeats his enemies. He at last defeats the injustice, the violence, the corruption that has masqueraded for so long as what is good. It has put itself forth as what is the best for people. It has taken a false faith and been deceptive for so many years and God at last defeats it. The great system that had grown up all over the earth was burned and destroyed. There was a great rejoicing in heaven. The system, this is the system that Satan promised Jesus that he would only bow down and worship him. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus and said, he took him up on the mountain and said, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give you power over all of these things. This was the system that Satan was offering Jesus. It is this Babylon. In chapters um, 17 and 18 in Revelation, we read about Babylon. We read about some of the um, uh, the features of this system. And it was after this was destroyed that Jesus claimed his bride. This system, if you look in chapter 18, verse 11, it says, The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their, their goods anymore, their cargo. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human soul. And so you see this description of Babylon. Doesn't it sound a little bit like our world? There's international commerce going on here. There are ships carrying these things. There's a means of production to get these things to manufacture these things and keep these things going. There's a high standard of living uh, that is that is taken for granted as a standard of living. And when these things are destroyed, the whole infrastructure is gone. People like, the economy fails. How are we going to live? Um, they're wringing their hands at the destruction of Babylon. Babylon here, it gets its name from Babel, the Tower of Babel. 
which is the first human society that was organized against God. In pride, in human pride against God, people got together to talk brotherhood and said, we will make a name for ourselves. And this false society, this false fellowship, if you'll call it, was against God. God dispersed that. And he's working today through the church to bring back from all of those tribes and nations and kindreds and peoples one people again who will glorify him, who again meet under his name, who call him Lord. God is creating in the earth a one people, one people of God, unified. And this is the bride that is invited to the marriage supper. This bride has white garments. It says in verse 8, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. The church has not compromised or been enticed by the earthly kingdom. It's separate from it. And yet, the fine linen is the deed of the saints. The church has lived in the world it's done things. The works that we have done, that the church has, or the bride has done, means that the bride has been present in the world, working, has not been isolated. And I say here there's a difference between separation and isolation. This has not been an isolated bride, it has been a separated bride, present in the world, working, and glorifying God. And this is similar to the reality that Jesus spoke about in the parable of the tares and the wheat, where there's weeds growing in the middle of the wheat field, and the man says, you know what, it will destroy the wheat if I go and try to pluck up all the tares. I'll wait and harvest everything, and then when they winnow it, fresh it, that lighter seed from the, from the weeds, that stuff will blow out over the top, and it will be burned. Um, and so... In keeping a pure church, we're trying to be the church of God we're in. With some of this, that God will have to separate at the end. And yet, we're not compromised. I have three points in this passage. The first one is, the mission of the church is to hold the testimony of Jesus. If I were to ask you what the mission of the church is, I wonder what you'd ask, answer me. If you say it's evangelism, if you say it's caring for people, if you say it's the practice brotherhood, uh, or to address the problems in society, different groups answer this different ways. And there are possibly many answers. But in, in general, overall, it is to hold the testimony of Jesus. All of these other answers are just one aspect of the one great thing that is the mission of the church. And so many of those can be done as activities, but the mission of the church is not just an activity. It is a reality, a living, embodied reality. It is the indwelling presence of Christ through the Spirit in all that the church is and does. So, defined in action terms, it is to hold to the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus also needs to be further defined. There's two ways of thinking about this that we find in the Scripture. One is a testimony about Jesus. 
Another way of thinking of it is the testimony of Jesus himself. So that wherever I go, Jesus is actually speaking out of me, flowing from Jesus. Or is it just that I am talking about him? See a difference here in Luke chapter um, 24. The two people on the way to Emmaus, the two disciples, Jesus called up with them and they didn't recognize him. He said, what are you talking about and why are you so sad? So in 24.19, they say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, about him. A man who was a prophet. These men had a testimony about him. And that's the first step. They did not even have the testimony of him. And when the testimony is only about Jesus, the life of Jesus has not yet entered the heart and soul through conversion. But when Jesus has entered the heart, the testimony comes from Jesus himself. Think about this. So let's say you're in the store, in the checkout counter, and you really want to talk to the lady about Jesus, but there's someone behind you, and you would make him wait. If all you have is a testimony about Jesus, you have to decide, am I going to make this man wait and serve God? Or am I going to not serve God and do what's kind to the man? If you have the testimony of Jesus, you can testify for him without saying anything by who you are. Now, you should also talk about him where you can. But, or if, let's say there's a restricted area where Christians aren't allowed to... Um, um, solicit. So, should I break the law and hand out the track? Or should I keep the law and just be silent? Well, I can be the track without breaking the law. Now, some of the time I'm thinking we're going to have to break the law. We have to serve God rather than men. But I'm calling it to a higher reality. The testimony of Jesus, that is the mission of the church. So, what is the testimony of Jesus? My second point is the testimony of Jesus is a prophetic witness. So the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. As Jesus testifies through us, we present the heart of God to the world in hope and in judgment. The testimony of Jesus is prophetic because it knows how things are going to end. And it is in a different, it is in tune with a different reality than the world. The world is living in the reality of chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation. That is the reality around it. I just want us to know that. When we go to work every day, thankfully there's the Christians out there. Not everything is bad, folks. Um, there's a lot of influence for God in our land. Okay, I'm not wanting to paint it too, too bleak of a picture. I'm just going to say this is where the world in general is heading. But we are in tune with a different reality. That's a prophetic witness. The Spirit of Jesus testifies that we have fallen and are under judgment because of sin. The world is corrupt and will be burned with fire. The way that we can escape this judgment is through repentance and faith in Christ. God has provided a way for us to do this through the blood of His Son. And God will send His Son to judge the world and bring back to be with Him all those who have put their faith in Him. This is the reality that we live with. This is the, this is the foundation 
So who is living in reality? Babylon or the kingdom of God? There's not really a middle ground here. My fear for the church is that inasmuch as we have accepted the definitions of Babylon, that we will be tempted against the reality that God wants to bring. My third point is that a prophetic witness is the revelation of God to the world. So when we witness for Christ, uh, when we are um, living from the reality of the Word of God, when we're living from the reality of Christ and the Spirit in us, what I'm calling a prophetic witness, then that witness is the revelation of God. God is revealed. God is known. He is seen. And this is a this is a very foundational part of prophecy, revelation. There are different ways of knowing things. Um, observation of nature. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glories of God. You can see God in nature. Um, there's reasoning that we can use. But these things that God has revealed to us, revelation, are things that cannot be deduced by observation. They're things that we could not have come up with on our own. God has revealed these to us. First John tells us in 224-27 He says, Let this that you have heard from the beginning, let it abide in you. If the things that you have heard from the beginning abide in you, then you will abide in the Father and the Son. Then he goes on and says, The anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. You don't have a need for a teacher because it's in you. It's abiding in you. All followers of Christ bear within them this prophetic witness. God writes His laws in our hearts. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Um, in Revelation 7, 14, he says, These are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb, the cleansing, is the basis for this testimony. And so, there are leadership gifts in the church. God has given pastors and teachers. Um, what are some of the others? Um, apostles, prophets, ministers, teachers, etc. These are leaders that God put in the church. These are important offices, and yet, all who receive Christ have within themselves this special revelation of God. So, a question for you. Did we go from an era of having prophets to an era of having no prophets? When 
we went from the Old to the New Testament. We no longer have prophets. Is that right? I'm going to make a bold statement. I'm going to say that all we have is prophets. It's not just the leadership gift. It's every believer in Christ that has this prophetic witness, that has this revelation of God within himself, within herself, to offer to the world. And this is the testimony of Jesus. I just want to clear up a couple things about prophecy. Um, prophecy does involve some thought about the future, obviously. That's what the prophets did. There's a lot of wrestling about details and end time events. That's okay. That's all right. But I want to tell you here, as important as it is to study what God has revealed about end time events, we have to understand that the prophets themselves did not understand them. Peter tells us, um, well, first of all, Jesus told us in Acts, he says, it is not for you to discern the times and seasons which the Father has placed under his own authority. And um, Peter also tells us that they realized that it was not to themselves, but it was unto us that they ministered these things. They didn't quite fully grasp what they were talking about. They needed God was giving this to them. And so, I'm not referring here to being good at knowing, for instance, whether Trump is one of the figures in Revelation or Putin or the, the Kingdom of the North or the South, if this is Syria, if this is Russia. Some of those might be some really good questions. But I'm just saying that's not really where the meat is here, where we're talking about prophecy. Another way prophecy is used sometimes, you hear it said, well, you know, this person has the gift of prophecy, so they're pretty sharp around the edges, and you kind of have to just take it with a grain of salt. It's kind of seen as a truth-telling, um, bitter or angry type of haranguing that they, that they do yet to kind of put up with them. I just want to say that's not biblical. Okay. Prophets might tend to be that way sometimes. And if we do, we need correction. I do myself say. Those that do need correction, people tell me I have this gift. There's a word in the English language, Jeremiah. How many of you have heard the word Jeremiah? One? A couple people. Okay, that word actually means like an angry tyrant. Often in literature, um, like a person delivered a Jeremiah. Well, if you read the book of Jeremiah, nothing is further from the truth. In fact, God tells him in uh, chapter 7 of Jeremiah, God says, listen, these people are so far gone, I don't even want you to mourn for them. I'm going to read the verse 7.16. As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or a prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. 
God talking, okay? What does Jeremiah do about that? Listen to what he says a couple of chapters later, 9 verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah goes on and just weeps and cries for them throughout the rest of the book. This is the spirit of prophecy. It's the spirit. Jeremiah did not distance himself from the people. Later in the book, when the people wanted to go down to Egypt, and Jeremiah said, no, it's not from the Lord. It's not from the Lord. Do not go down to Egypt. And they went anyway. Just what Jeremiah went with them. He didn't distance himself from the people. He was one of them. There was not a standoffish spirit of condemnation. God has condemned sin, which needs to be strongly rebuked. And yet, Jeremiah stayed with his people, suffered with them. So, I just wanted to clear that up about prophecy. And whether we have what is known or thought about as we get to prophecy or not, whether we're leaders or not, we're prophets. In the sense that we can't, that we hold within us a prophetic witness for Jesus Christ. And this prophetic witness is a revelation of God. God is revealed in his people. A couple questions this morning. Do you believe that God is going to win? Or are you living a defeated life? Are you living in expectation of defeat for the church? Another question. In the battle that you have against evil or sin. Are you committed to the reality that, that God has proclaimed in His Word? The one that's against you and win? Or do you feel yourself being swept into the, into the reality of Babylon? Do you feel your life being pulled into the luxuries? Pulled into the comfort? Pulled into caring about more about the economy and the temperature and the lawnmower starting and the list can go on, and the food, and whatever can go on. The system, the life that we have surrounded ourselves with to make life work more than the triumph of Christ to the church. Which reality is pulling us this morning? Another question. Is your testimony of Jesus a testimony about Jesus? Or is it a testimony from Jesus himself? Is it Jesus' own testimony to you? And here I just want to say, we all start with a testimony about Jesus. That's where we all start. And it can grow. It grows. It's okay. Maybe the question is, which way is it growing? And Jesus just says, you know, I'm going to fill you. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. I'm going to come, I want to dwell you, indwell you. I want you to be my people. I want you to. I want to be your God. I will dwell among you and be your God. He says.
I just want to say in conclusion, God is winning. He is winning. Jesus already predicted a time of apostasy near the end. And ever since the days of the apostles, every little church out there, every little group of leaders, every little group of people meeting for prayer has thought, I think, I think we see this happening. And that's one of the, the difficult things about prophecy is that usually there's a time when it's really going to happen for real, like at the end, in one really big event. But also it's sort of happening like all the time, the whole way through. And so both are true. Whichever way it's happening, God is winning, folks. Take up the rope of prophetic witness, get on the rope and pull. Spirit of God behind you. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we have talked about things that we do not understand. Things that you have given with your word, to your word. Things that are enshrouded in mystery. In light which no man can approach. Things that are in the heavenly heart of God, and yet you gave them to us through your word. You call us to live these things out. You call us to be brothers and sisters to one another. You call us, Lord, to somehow enflesh your pure spirit of truth in our own bodies and in our body, the church. We ask you, Father, just for grace today to be your people, to commit ourselves to you, Lord, and to follow you in the right way. Lord, I don't want to inspire fear. I don't want to um, leave any impressions here, Father, that are not of your spirit. I pray that you purify and cleanse us and give us hope. Give us encouragement, God, through your spirit. Help us make the commitment that we need to make to follow you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.